On the record on News Talk. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. Before we came on air this morning, we spoke to Lesia Vasilenko, who is a pro-European opposition MP in the Ukrainian parliament. Now, as you'll understand, things being as they are in Kiev, she wasn't necessarily available to take a call with us live on air, which is why we recorded the conversation before we came on air this morning when we knew she had a couple of minutes to speak to us and she was very generous with her time. Um, I started by asking her about the the toll that all of this has taken on her as a, a politician, as a Ukrainian citizen and as a mother. Uh, very tense. It's definitely not something that I have ever expected to experience in my life and not something that I have ever wanted to experience in my life. Uh, you can never be prepared for war, no matter how, how uh, much time you live with, with the background of war in your head. And we Ukrainians lived with that background for eight years. But what came, what hit us at five in the morning on the 24th of February 2022, that that force uh, is still very difficult to believe. You posted a video on Twitter a few days ago of a sitting of the Ukrainian parliament. You opened with the national anthem. You described it as being short and tense. How much work is there uh, right now for opposition MPs like you? Is it just a case of martial law, meaning that the the president and, and Mr. Zelensky and his cabinet just do everything? Or is there any role for people like you right now? Look, every single Ukrainian has a role in in the country at this point in time. Uh, we uh, MPs, we are just Ukrainians at the end of the day and first and foremost. And like all Ukrainians, we are doing something. Some of us used to be uh, military and they went back to their regiments and to their battalions and they are fighting on the ground with Ukrainian soldiers. Some of us have training in the medical sphere, so we are helping out the hospitals. Uh, Some of us are uh, with their constituencies, with our constituencies, working the uh, humanitarian field and uh, gathering humanitarian aid and sending it where it is most needed. Um, I'm organizing partly humanitarian efforts, partly evacuations from Kyiv. Uh, and uh, most of the time what I do is I work the, um, the international scene, if you want mm. to call it like that. I'm on uh, online uh, 24-7 talking to uh, my colleagues, fellow parliamentarians, from across the globe, from Canada, from Portugal, from the UK, from Czech, from uh, Belgium, uh, Spain, like you name it. And uh, the reason I do that is because I plea and I appeal to have a no-fly zone over Ukraine, to save Ukraine and to save the 44 million Ukrainians who are trapped here under Russian missiles and Russian bombs. Um, On that note, uh, obviously this has been something that almost everyone in Ukraine has been calling for. And the response from NATO is always that they are unwilling to implement a no-fly zone because if any Russian aircraft were then to enter that, NATO would feel compelled to shoot them down and then that would be direct conflict between Russia and NATO and that would almost be World War III. Do you understand their response? No, I don't understand their response. I think that the NATO country leaders are extremely irresponsible towards their own people, actually, because what they are uh, thinking of 
is a very remote risk. First of all, Russia has no resources to attack NATO countries. Second of all, Russia has no interest in attacking NATO countries because Russia is concentrating all their attention and um, all their efforts on Ukraine and on killing Ukrainians and on erasing Ukraine off of from the face of the earth. Uh, and at that, they can have no distractions. Uh, that's number one. Number two is the fact that uh, Russia is bombing and shelling Ukraine everywhere, every single part of its territory. And it's no secret that the strategic military targets are uh, basically civilian targets and also uh, objects of critical in infrastructure. I will translate this into normal English. Objects of critical infrastructure, this means uh, water reservoirs, power plants, um, roads, so uh, pipelines. So, for example, Ukraine has five nuclear power plants. Five very big nuclear power plants. If they get hit by accident or on purpose by a Russian missile, the world is looking at a nuclear catastrophe of the magnitude never seen before. So what it means is that people as far out as the UK, Ireland, I don't know, Iceland, Australia even, they will get affected by that radiation coming from that nuclear disaster. It will not just be Ukrainians who are suffering, it will be the whole world. And the Western leaders, when they take this approach that they don't want a World War III and that they don't want to uh, annoy Putin any more than they already have, they are just being absolutely careless and they're just not facing the truth the way that it is. Uh, so I think that the no-fly zone is actually the only way to stop Putin, to stop his aggression over Ukraine, but also over the whole of the world. And just to go back to the first point that you said there in that answer, and thank you for giving it. So you believe that Russia doesn't really have the resources to, to be able to take on NATO so that if NATO basically took control of Ukrainian airspace, that it would just stop Russia from entering it at all because they're not going to pick that fight? They are not going to pick that fight. They have nothing to pick that fight with. We are shooting down their planes by the dozens every single night, every single day. Uh, we have information now that they are no longer um, going to be using the most sophisticated weapons such as the Iskander uh, missile uh, launchers uh, that they have because they are running out of them. And uh, they absolutely have no... Uh, uh, potential or resource here on the ground to be attacking NATO countries. Plus, Russia knows best than to pick a war with NATO. And all NATO resources, they are much, much bigger than uh, Russian resources. NATO, uh, Russia is the third biggest army in the world. Before them is the United States. The United States, which is a NATO country. United with all the other NATO countries, we are talking about a power, a force much, much bigger. So when I say all of this, I actually want the world to understand that uh, we have such a thing as history, which is being carefully documented and put into history books. And all, uh, all of us who have finished secondary school, we have learned of such a period in history as World War II and especially 1938. During that time, 
the Western allies also didn't want to have the horrors of World War One repeating. So they decided to do nothing and watch as Hitler annexed country after country and grew stronger and stronger. And before long, 1939 came and World War II started anyway. But by, by, that, by that point, already millions of lives were being taken. The same thing is happening in Ukraine now. As the world watches from the sidelines and is having fun observing this David Goliath kind of struggle between a uh, very small Ukraine and a very, very big Russia, uh, lives are being taken. Lives of Ukrainian children, Ukrainian women, Ukrainian ordinary people. And uh, th these civilian casualties now, they run by the thousands. But soon the count will be by the millions. And again, as history has shown us, it takes millions of lives and rivers of blood for the West to start acting. You have a chance not to repeat this mistake. Uh, and I'll, it's better to start acting now. I'll ask you just in a moment what you think countries like Ireland can do where we don't have much military power. But just on that concern about the future of your country, um, there's some analysis that given the, the occupation that Russia already has of Crimea, that if it was to fully take over and to unify with the, the separatists in, in Donetsk and Luhansk, you would have a very large portion of the country immediately then under Russian control and that they would use that as the base to surround and occupy the remaining cities, including eventually Kiev as well. By that analysis, even though Ukraine is putting up an incredible resistance, that it may only be a matter of time before the country is completely occupied. Uh, that is a very correct analysis, but this is exactly why Ukrainians are standing united with the military, with the territorial defense units, and this is why we are doing all we can to keep standing strong and making sure that every morning we wake up and there are no more uh, uh, towns under Russian occupation control. I know that you're um, an opposition MP, so you're not necessarily, uh, in, in regular times, you wouldn't necessarily be an ally or a supporter of, of President uh, Zelensky. Can you understand his desire to meet face-to-face -face or to have direct negotiations with Vladimir Putin when it seems that, that Putin and the Russian, MP, uh, Russian uh, government don't really seem to be approaching this or almost seem to be unnegotiable that they, they don't seem that they can be spoken to like even yesterday we had the discussion about the humanitarian corridors being created and then not being observed you know refugees being shelled as they tried to take refuge it doesn't seem like putin is the sort of government that you could have any kind of negotiation with uh well uh, putin cannot be negotiated with he doesn't understand negotiations he doesn't honor agreements of any kind international law to him is just a checklist of crimes that he can commit and it seems like he's just you know flipping through the geneva conventions going through them point by point and thinking oh what else can i do what other horrendous war crimes or crimes against humanity i can commit against those ukrainians and uh just yesterday what we had was a breach of those very agreements they reached an agreement during the negotiations in belarus that uh they would be given both sides would be uh pulling back their forces and that both sides, Ukraine and Russia, would give a green humanitarian corridor for uh, Ukrainian civilians to walk out of the cities of Volnovakha and the cities of Mariupol, two towns in east of Ukraine which are just being brutally destroyed 
by Russian missiles, Russian artillery, and all of the Russian army. Uh, so these corridors were set up. And as people were walking out, walking through them under the observation of the International Committee of the Red Cross, by the way, Russian forces started uh, to shoot at them. Just blatantly point blank, blank shoot at simple civilians who were walking out into safety, apparently. Very soon, these green corridors turned red with the blood of all these civilians. And this is just horrendous. It's unimaginable. It's it just, you know, you don't, I, I'm telling you this and I don't even understand how it is possible to be shooting at unarmed people who are walking through at an agreed time, through an agreed road to safety. Mm. I think that only monsters and barbarians are capable of that. And it's not just about the psychotic psychopath leader who's sitting in Moscow and giving the orders. It is also about those who are carrying those orders out. Um, what does a country like Ireland have to do? What sort of role does it play in a conflict like this? Because Ireland is is barely a military power. In fact, I mean, obviously you're not up to speed completely with the day-to-day stuff of Irish politics, but our defence forces recently, we discovered, couldn't defend Ireland if there was a similar aggression, let alone come to the assistance of anyone else. We are traditionally militarily neutral. We have never been a part of NATO. Given that Ireland is not really much of a military power, what sort of role can Ireland play to help bring all of this to an end? You know, this war, which is being waged by Russia against Ukraine and the world security order as we know it today, it has many shapes and sizes. And it's not just traditional warfare happening here on the ground and in the air and in the seas of Ukraine. Uh, this warfare is waged in, in such forms as uh, economic warfare, uh, energy, uh, uh, warfare in the energy sector, in the informational sector. So there's actually a lot of fronts that Ireland can join Ukraine and join forces with Ukraine and fight with Ukraine. You can stop buying uh, Russian oil and gas, for example, as well as all other uh, Russian goods and services, anything that comes from Russia, anything that will then contribute to the budget of Russia which in turn will contribute to sponsoring the largest terrorist army in the world that is massacring Ukrainians as we speak. Uh, The Irish people can come out uh, to protests and peaceful marches of support of Ukrainians. That is, uh, that is a very, uh, these events are very symbolic and they are very much needed here because we, we see the pictures, we see the videos, and it's a great encouragement for our people who are sleeping in uh, basements uh, and who every day wake up and understand that they have to fight and struggle for their life. It's a great comfort to know that all of the world is supporting us and is standing strong with us. Finally, uh, I understand that Ireland is a neutral country and that there's not much you can do on a, on a military level, mm. but uh, Ukraine is offering uh, foreign nationals the opportunity to join the international territorial battalions of Ukraine. So you can sign up at the embassy of Ukraine and uh, travel to Ukraine 
and be able to join one of the regiments fighting the Russian armies here. And that, that will also be a support to our military directly here on the ground. And I guess you will be doing uh, just a very, very big uh, input mm. into fighting off uh, an attempt of Vladimir Putin to bring back empires from history books into the real world. Um, finally, Lesia, and I'm sorry to end on what might be a difficult note, but just to end on a personal question, because I started by asking you the effect that all of this has had on you as a, you know, as a politician, as an opposition figure, and also as a mother. You uh, told us on Twitter a couple of days ago that for the second time in three months, you had had to hand over your your baby daughter, who's only nine months old, um, not knowing if you'd ever see her again. Um, have you seen her since? Do you know if she's okay? Do you have hopes of being able to bring her back to you soon? Yeah, I know she's okay, but I don't think that I'll be bringing back either either uh, my baby Sophia or um, any uh, or the other two of my children to Ukraine. I don't think it's a safe place. I actually uh, concentrate a lot of my time, dedicate a lot of my time to helping other families evacuate their children as far out as possible. Because really, uh, Ukraine at the moment my beloved city of Kiev are not safe for children. That is Lassia Vasilenko, who's a pro-European uh, Ukrainian MP speaking to me uh, earlier on. Um, I said to her all fair about the fact that I, I have um, two small kids of my own as well and I can't imagine having to make that sort of gesture of sending your kids to another country to make sure that they're kept safe because you don't know whether you can keep them with you. And she said, well, yeah, it's a, it's a case of life or death. And those are the sacrifices that people in Ukraine are making. 